prayer. Father, in these moments now, we ask for uh, your spirit to be our true teacher and to uh, speak to our hearts through your word. Call us further along in our journey in faith toward you. We ask that the, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, those of you who have been with us for the last uh, several weeks, you realize we have been, Robert has been preaching through uh, the book of 1 John. And um, as things have fallen, I didn't get, you know, last week's text, or this next week's text is all about love and kumbaya, and I get this text. In this text, John is addressing these congregations that are facing a problem that has come among them. And the problem is that there are these teachers, these prophets, so-called, that have come among them, that have brought to them an alternative view, an alternative understanding of how things are. And the first thing John does in this passage is calls them away from a quick, quick belief, a quick embracing of these people and their teaching. They did not have the privilege of living in the time in which we live, of mass communication and emails and mass marketing and cell phones and all that stuff. So these people would simply show up in their town and they would be prophets And the people would honestly and innocently think that they've come with a new revelation. They've come with a new message. They've come with some new insight that we haven't been told before. And they would bring deception and wreck and ruin among the people. St. Paul warns the church at Ephesus about a similar thing when he says to them, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Yet for John's audience, there was more than a trickiness that was taking place. These were not simply people that had come among them with a few bad ideas or some misinformation. But rather, these were false prophets. And more so, they were speaking, as John says, from the spirit of Antichrist. And John says there was a test that they were to give them. It's as if this is a one-question exam that they are to take. Perhaps you saw the meme that went around recently of the Star Trek characters, and the one says to the other one that I recently took a magician's course, but I failed the final exam. They were all trick questions, he says. John says that the test the very foundational thing is how do they present Christ? Who do they say that Jesus is? John says at verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And John in the second epistle will expand upon this concept even further when he says to the believers, For many deceivers have gone out into the world 
those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. This is the foundational test. This is the base thing. Who do they say that Jesus is? Are they speaking from the spirit of the Father, or are they speaking from some fallen spirit, some antichrist? Now, when John says to them they're to test the prophets, they're to test them, there's another way to think about this, not like an exam on a piece of paper, but it is rooted in the notion and the idea of receiving. That is, when you test this, is this a word that you can receive? Is this a word that you can receive for yourself? Is this a word that you can base your life on? Is this a word that you can embrace for life? Is this something that you can trust as being effective to build you up in your journey toward salvation? John says that these people must make a confession. What is it that they confess, John says? And when he uses that word confess, it carries with it the notion, the idea, it means to speak the same word. In other words, he's saying, is the message that these prophets proclaiming, is it consistent with the message that you heard from us? That's what John is asking. This message that we as the apostles received and have handed to you, is the prophet's message consistent with that message? Now, I haven't seen this document anywhere, but I've had a couple of Anglican priests tell me over the years, or heard them say over the years, that the reason the creed comes after the sermon is so that you can test the sermon by the creed. In other words, after the person preaches the message, then you hear the creed and you confess the creed and you judge what was said. Is it consistent with the creed? The creed says that we confess in the first service, the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. And John is saying, does their message consist of that message? You recall the interaction between Jesus and Simon. Jesus asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you yourselves say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This, in reality, is incarnational reality. To say that Jesus is the Christ, and I know this isn't a real word, but I'm going to use it anyway, is to say that the Christ is enfleshed. That through the virgin's womb, deity has taken on flesh and blood and has become one of us in order that we might become one with him. And this seems to be what is the issue for our author of our text today. That there were those who came among those churches preaching a different Christ, denying that Jesus the Christ was a flesh and blood human being, or as Mario Bergner used to say, that Jesus is God in a bod. So he says, confess. And then he says that these people who are making an alternative confession whose word does not agree with what has always been taught. They're speaking from the spirit of Antichrist. John is saying, just as there is a spirit of Christ, whom the world cannot receive, as Jesus stated, so there is a spirit of Antichrist to whom the world does listen, as John asserts. And notice, it is already there that in John's day, he says this is already in the world. This spirit of Antichrist. 
And I understand there are some Christians who are always busy with end-time messages looking for the one Antichrist. I'm here to tell you that the spirit of Antichrist has been here since Christ came and rose from the dead. And I know it's very tempting in this age in which we live, in this time in which we live, to see the tragedy that is happening in the Middle East and to want to fit that in somehow with your eschatology and your end times, and that is a dangerous thing to do, folks. What we have to stop and remember and hear and receive what John is saying. That there is a spirit that speaks against the Christ. It denies the reality of Christ And it makes of Jesus something other than who he is. And the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is, what are we to make of all of this that John says? What does this thing that John wrote some 2,000 years ago have to do with us sitting here in this space and time in the 21st century? There are five things that I want to leave with you. You can mark them off so you know we're getting close to the end, okay? The first is, there still remains a need to test the spirits of the prophets. To be against the incarnation of Christ, that is to deny that Christ has come in the flesh, is not just to speak against the doctrine of the church, it is also to speak of Christ himself and to speak against Jesus himself. It is to be against Christ. To confess him then is to proclaim his message and to participate in his mission. Now, Jesus identifies himself, as it were. He speaks and takes upon himself a text of Scripture and says this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing because he's saying it is fulfilled in him. When it tells us in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding region. And he began teaching in the synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And to set free those who were oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were intently directed at him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It is not enough simply for you and I to mouth the words of confession. The church must be a vehicle of that message and mission today in the lives of those who have been broken and wrecked and ruined by the message of the world and the Antichrist. This is why John spends so much time in his little epistle writing about love when he says that you cannot hate your brother whom you have seen and say that you love God whom you have not seen. For James, he puts it this way, that you and I cannot claim to have faith in God and yet have no works to demonstrate that faith, for he says faith without works is dead. It is not enough just to confess the right words. It is to believe the mission and the message of Christ are still alive today, that the Spirit of Christ is still speaking, that His voice still speaks to His church as the church joins Him in His work. 
In Old City, Jerusalem, there's an Anglican church called Christ Church, and it broadcasts services in that region, and their broadcast reaches all the way to the Palestinians in Gaza, and there have been many accounts of men and women, Muslim men and women, who have come to faith in Jesus as Messiah because the Spirit of the Lord is still speaking, still liberating, still calling men and women to faith in Jesus. Or consider the mythologist and storyteller Martin Shaw, or the novelist Paul Kingsforth, who in the most recent years have come to faith in Jesus because the Spirit of Christ is still speaking through His church and through His people. But oftentimes we have confused the message of Christ with the message of our cultural and political trappings. There are so many voices in the world today, and the church herself has often at times seemingly become confused. And we must stop and pause and remember what Jesus said to the churches in Asia Minor. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. It is the church that Jesus addresses that to. We must learn to listen again to that message and make it central to who we are and what we proclaim. Secondly, two, you can mark this one off. We must take care that we don't confuse our preferences for absolutes. Now, a couple of you in here can remember the 1970s. Some of you don't. You're going, when was that? I'm old enough to remember. I know you don't believe that, but I am old enough to remember the 1970s. And there was something that arrived in the 1970s on the scene of American Christianity, especially in evangelical, Pentecostal, and charismatic circles, the so-called contemporary music. They brought that syncopated music right into the church. And let me tell you, it was met with great resistance. And there were people who hated that, and they were juggling Bible verses like clowns in a circus trying to come up with a justification to be against it, and they were proclaiming their personal preferences for biblical teaching. We have to take care that we don't do that. We end up, as Jesus said, swallowing a camel while we strain at a gnat. We end up majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. Or we may be like the old farmer who came to town, he and his wife. One Saturday afternoon, as they had finished their chores, they drove into town for the county fair. And as they came into town, the farmer spotted across the road, out in a big open field, a biplane. Now, if you don't know what a biplane is, that's a plane that has two sets of wings. And that farmer had always wanted to ride in a biplane. And he steered his wife over that direction. And he found out that the rides were $10 a person. And his wife said, well, $10 is $10. He said, you're right. Let's go. And the pilot hadn't made many trips up that day and hadn't sold too many rides. And he says, oh, now listen, y'all. Come on now. It's only $10. And the farmer looks at his wife. He goes, yeah, honey, it's only $10. And she goes, yeah, but $10 is $10. He goes, you're right. Starts to walk away. And the pilot, he hadn't had that many rides that day. And he goes, listen, folks, I'll make you a deal. He goes, I'll take you both up. And if you take this ride and you don't make one sound through the whole ride, I'll give you the ride for free. But if I hear one sound out of you, one peep, any noise out of you, you pay me $10 each. And the 
farmer looked at his wife. He said, I think we should take that deal. And she said, okay, let's do it. So he crawled on the plane. The, farmer, the pilot takes off. He's flying. He doesn't hear a word from either one of them. He thinks, i got to do something to get this 10 bucks out of these two. So he says, I'm going to do some loops. He does some loopity loops, and he goes this way and that way, and he hears nothing. Finally, he thinks, i got to land this plane. So he lands the plane. He cuts the engine. He hollers over his shoulder. I can't believe I didn't hear a word out of either one of you. And the farmer said, I started to say something when my wife fell out, but I figured $10 is $10. <laughs> We swallow camels while we strain at gnats. In the midst of this, we must learn to walk in humility and gently with one another. Someone may not cross their T's and dot their I's exactly as you do. Their theology may not be 100% in line with yours. Remember, regardless what your theology is, whatever you know, you only know in part, Paul says. That doesn't make them a heretic. We have to walk in humility and gently with one another. Take care that we don't confuse our preferences for our absolutes. Number three, check it off. Bad theology leads to bad practice. Now, many years ago when we lived in Iowa, my wife and I, there was a small college in the small town we lived in, and there were two young couples Uh, that are both preacher boys today, but they they were young couples married and in college and came to our house, and they would hang out with us once a week. And it was kind of a mentoring time and a time-spending time with them, and this for a period of time that they shared with, we shared life together with them. And then the one young man uh, became a pastor first, and I remember him saying, oh, Lord, I shook my head, thought, Lord, help me. And um, he shook his head, he goes, you know, we, with theology, we don't really need theology. Now listen, folks, every one of you in this room, whether you know it or not, you are a theologian, okay? Your theology and how you do theology is shaping how you see yourself, how you see God, how you do life in the world. Bad theology leads to bad practice. And when someone is operating from the Spirit of Christ, then love is the modus operandi for their life. It is the only thing that can call us to liberate men and women, to set them free in the love of Jesus and to trust the Spirit of Jesus to do His work in their life. But when someone is against Christ, even if they correctly name the name of Jesus and they want to love, they don't want to love for the sake of freeing or liberating the other person, they in reality want to consume that person or at least hold that person in dependence upon themselves. They're like those mutilators at Galatia that wanted to lay the law upon those believers because they didn't understand the freedom that is ours in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ liberates men and women to become what the Father meant for them to be in His love. And the Spirit of Antichrist locks men and women into the bondage of darkness. The false prophets always want men and women looking to them and dependent upon them. Number four is we share incarnation with Him. As I previously alluded to, God does not disdain matter. 
it is we moderns who so often border on neo-Gnosticism in our talk of the material world, and we have often made the gospel an escape from this realm when we have been called to engage this realm with the message of redeeming love. St. Paul talked about incarnational reality. He didn't use that term, but that's what he meant. He had two metaphors he would use for it, and then a phrase that he would use. One of those is found in, in, well, they're both found in his letter to the churches at Corinth. One was the metaphor of a temple. When he said, do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you? The other metaphor Paul liked was that of the body, and he said, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then a favorite term of Paul's was in Christ and Christ in you. This is incarnational reality, that Christ came in the flesh, and now, as John says in his epistle, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You share incarnational reality with him, and it is through you that the life of Jesus is expressed in this world. And his message goes forth, and his mission is done. Lastly, is the issue that we must ask ourselves, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Not who do your parents say that he is, not who does the pastor say that he is, but who do you, who do you say that he is? I had some biological I mean, excuse me, some autographical, autobiographical sketches sent to me along with a bunch of us uh, in in, in our jurisdiction of chaplains. For men who are potentially going to be raised up to the office of bishop, 14 of them I have to read. (laughs) Woo-woo, wah-wah, poor me. And I've not read all of them, but I read some of them. I started looking through them yesterday. Fourteen. One of the men is originally from the Philippines. Another man is originally from England. And another guy I noticed is from West Texas. And whether he was Filipino or whether he was a Brit in origin or whether he was from West Texas, there was one thing they all shared in common. And that is the saving grace of Jesus Christ in their life. It didn't matter where they had come from. What mattered is who they had met in their journey. It mattered who they met. And they had discovered that this Christ who had come in the flesh had come for them had died for them, had risen for them, had offered life eternal through faith in Him to them. They answer the question, who do they say He is? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who this morning do you say that He is? And do you know in your heart that you have met Him? That you for yourself Not for your parents, not for the pastor, not for your friends, but you for yourself have come to this faith in Him. He 
beckons you. He welcomes you. He welcomes whosoever will may come, the Scripture says. I encourage you in your heart, in your mind, in your life. If you've never come to that place, open your heart and yourself to Him and confess this faith in the one who loves you more than you can know or you can imagine. May you come to know Him and may we as the church be those who always confess that Jesus is the Christ and share in His message and His ministry. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.